Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. Philanthropy, from the Greek for love and humanity. So when put together, it is the love of humankind. Well, Tim Volk's guest today brings a numbers background to his extensive work in philanthropy, but numbers are usually definitive and absolute. So Tim, how does Rob Caulfield make the love of humanity and numbers play well together? And how do you know Rob? Well, Patrice, thank you. I want to welcome everybody to our episode with a good friend of mine, Rob. He and I have spent uh, many years together getting to know each other. We've been in some thought leadership groups together. I want to just tell you all, I think Rob is one of the, I'm a Rob fan. And I think when one of the interesting things about the work Rob's doing today is it's, it's just so far from where he started in his career as an accountant. And then from the accounting, he led it the career into family office work, helping set up family offices, then running some family offices. And in doing so, found this passion in philanthropy. So I asked him to come on the show today to talk to us about philanthropy. And I think it's an interesting topic for a lot of reasons, as as I've been in mission-driven organizations since I was very young in my career. I I believe in volunteering our time and being very active in, in the community and helping others. I find, though, that there's a great joy in it. And so what I thought would be fun is to have Rob come on the show and talk to us about what he's learned, why he's made this shift in his career, and then what we can learn from him. And the first part of this first podcast, we're going to do two podcasts with him, which is very gracious of him, is sort of the hurdles in philanthropy, charitable giving, and you'll hear us use those terms, the values, resources, and the partnerships that you can have in philanthropy. And one of the things before I have Rob step off is I want to read a stat that he wrote in one of the recent white papers. And this stat is from 2014. The Foundation Center estimated there are 42,008 family foundations in the United States. In that year, these foundations provided 26 billion of gifts and had an accumulated asset value of approximately $401 billion. For reference, total charitable giving in the United States reached an all-time high in 2014 of $358.4 billion. Most of it came from individuals. And I think that, you know, the field of philanthropy, when we talk about dreaming, we, we need people that dream in philanthropy, and we need the ability of these people to help encourage more dreamers in the field. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. And I, I want to hear a little about you and how you would got to where you are. I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about your journey. So it, in family office work, as you know, Tim, the journey is never a straight line. So how you get here is always a little bit aware of what's around you and, and kind of just moving along with the flow, so to speak. And so, as you said, I started my career as an accountant, spent time on the insurance industry, spent time 
in public accounting firms and things like that. And in 2006, was invited to join a family office, Marshall Street Management in Norwalk, Connecticut, was my introduction to um, family office work. Mm. And that family did an inordinate amount of good work, mostly in the environmental space. And then as that office launched its firm and um, Mission Point Capital Partners was an offshoot of that entity, I really started understanding where philanthropy was heading in family office work. I had known that um, we had spent money on advisors in the investment field, in legal fields, and all these other places, but I was very curious as to who was helping families give away money. And so I, at, in 2010, I started an exploration of right, really who's doing philanthropic work and who's partnering with families to mm-hmm. tackle that, and then had the fortunate opportunity to join a family office in Colorado that had an explicit mission of setting up the family office, but also being the executive director of their private foundation. So I was able to go really deep into the philanthropic world and really try to understand that connection between family office systems and philanthropic systems and where I could be helpful. So, and and that's mm-hmm. where I continue today as director of philanthropic services at Arlington Family Offices, helping our client families execute, build and execute philanthropic missions. I think it's really an interesting shift because it was, you've, you've noticed this on your own and you were noticed the impact the families were having. And so why do you think it's important for us as sort of everyday people or people that are listening? Why is philanthropy so important? How would you describe it? There's a couple of things there. First of all, in 2022, the philanthropic dollars has grown to a half a trillion dollars a year. A half a trillion dollars a year is given in philanthropic spending. So I'm curious, as my kind of finance background, like, where is that going? How is it influencing what's going on? Where where are the effects of that? Like, Like, what's the impact of that? What's the impact of that growth of you know, almost $150 billion over the course of 10 years, like less than 10 years, where did that go? And what is it doing? And you can point to a lot of stuff. And so so there's that big, huge macro field, like this is not small. And so there's challenging, this complexity. There are things that are um, nuanced in this space. Um, all things that are really interesting when you're working with families specifically is, and why I do this work is I enjoy the complexity of it all. But the other side is, well, how does everybody get engaged in this work? Even my $250 to a small charity, like how is that impactful? And the reason why it's impactful is is because I don't think many people realize when they make a gift, they're actually part of a system. It's an it, You get individual enjoyment and pleasure and uh, mm-hmm. satisfaction from giving it, but you're also contributing to others who have contributed a, as well. So you're, you're part of a mission. Is part of that. And so when you're building this kind of infrastructure and thought, I'm curious as to finding those systems that are that are working or need help or just need um, support. And then families have the resources and the risk tolerance to do that, which I know we'll talk about. But that's there's just it's just so many cool ways to go about this work is is really why I've kind of found this to be the passion. Well, it's contagious, by the way. I think the giving and the participation and helping others, uh, I get a lot of 
personal joy. Rob and I did a personality profiling, Patrice, years ago. And uh, it's one of the reasons we got even closer. And it, one of the three things that I found out about myself is that I have great joy in helping others. It is one of my drivers in my personality. And so Rob and I have talked about philanthropy quite a bit because I find that giving and helping others in need is really powerful. And I think one of the things that I notice is we get very frustrated. Is, you know, I've been involved with a lot of mission-driven groups, and I forget sometimes I get so caught up in what I'm doing for them, whether you know, and I've been the chair of United Way in my old hometown in Cheyenne. I was, I was the youngest chair. I was on the board. And then you get frustrated with some of the politics or some of the personalities involved, but then you, you have to kind of step back and remember that you're there for a reason that you're there to help keep a system going to help others and to nurture it. Right. I mean, yeah. Can we, can we dissect that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I think, that, I think there's something interesting in there that, so when you're engaged in something like that, as the chair of the United way, like wh why, who, how did you, how did, how did you get that? How were you invited to that position? Well, because I think my family had a high profile business in the community. And I was very outgoing. I was on the Chamber of Commerce. I was doing, an, I taught aerobics at night. Right. And I had this all, I had this energy. And I started, I think, doing some volunteer work and helping right. to raise some money. And it just right. led to me being asked to do more. Right. Which is, which is the normal course of business, right? It's yeah. the normal way is that you've shown some interest you take one step and it's a donation, a volunteer moment, whatever it is. And then you take another step and another step. But a lot of the times you're no longer the chair of United Way. It's yeah. temporary. It right? is. Right. And, right. and the United Way still exists, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, thriving where, where it is and doing the work it's doing. So what the point of it is, that what was your time meant to be? And, and the work that I do is help with families is trying to understand, well, there's a couple of things that are important. One is where are your values, just family values, not your philanthropic values. Like what is, where are your passions? Where are the things that are most interesting to you? And then finding the charities and, char and charitable work that kind of aligns with that. But more importantly for families is understanding during the time that you're going to be engaged, what do you want to accomplish? Are you supporting a direct service organization and as you'll know, I'll say this a couple of times too. Everything I do is stolen from others. I got it. Philanthropy <laughs> is a team sport. And so a lot of this work is from the Center for, uh, for High Impact Philanthropy, where I'm on, a, on the board of advisors. And oh. so first is like, are you going to just support the general direct services that that organization has done forever and does it really well? Is that what you're doing? Is the second way is it are you supporting community capacity for that organization are you growing that organization are you supporting new initiatives in that organization which is different than supporting sustaining operations are you measuring the impact of that organization are you doing research and innovation for that to understand if they can be more efficient or expand their use for it or expand to new communities or are you doing policy and advocacy work, which I know is an important topic these days? And, and how are you doing policy and advocacy work that then creates ripples into the future that allow that organization to, you know, get resources from places other than individual giving, 
right? So one of the things you noted in it is that the majority of giving philanthropic giving is from individuals. That's still the case today. In 2022, really? it was it was 64% was from individuals, right? Wow. But no charity, no charity relies on 100% philanthropic gifts. They'll have fees for services of things that they're offering. Mm-hmm. If you think of like a an animal shelter, that type of stuff, they'll, you know, you'll get paid for some services. You'll get money from government, public places, local and federal. There's where your policy and advocacy and philanthropy will be part of it. So a, a nonprofit has a business element of understanding where its revenues are from. Mm-hmm. And philanthropic giving is only going to be part of it, even in the nonprofit world. And I think that's missed along the way. And so some of the work you can be doing in research and innovation or in policy and advocacy is understanding where those public resources are available for that nonprofit to lean into that then extends mm-hmm. your gifts going forward. So I, I know there's a lot in there, but those when you're engaged at that level is you're really just helping direct services um, you know, sustaining the organization or doing new organizations, doing research or innovation or doing um, policy and advocacy work. I think we're, you know, in the different organizations, because as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own involvement. But one of the thoughts was, you know, my grandmother, during the year I was a United Way chair, my grandmother had created the gift store at the hospital many when I before I was born and had really created a way for the hospital to raise money through their gift stores, right? Their merchandising. And Granny said to me, um, and it was, we were challenged because it was a year that the head of, national head of of United Way got caught stealing money. And so everybody thought it was gonna go away. And I'm like, you know, the United Way is embedded in so many businesses. It's such a big organization and there are so many charities that are tied to it. That my grandmother said, well, I think we could do some good. Why don't we try to raise money? And they don't have a, I said, Granny, they don't have a, a high donor group. So we created a legacy club and created a high donor group. And she helped me throw this big party to start the whole right. thing off. And I thought, well, there's a family event, right? right? That was my family supporting my effort, but also they knew in the community we needed to help some of the stuff. Right. So uh, there's a lot of things in there. So it was your individual values mm-hmm. were adopted by the family for a philanthropic purpose. Wonderful. Happens a lot. Right. And it, it's ways to engage when you, there's all discussion of, you know, how do we engage next generation in philanthropy? How do we promote our own family values? You know, do we honor individual values when we're promoting a family foundation that was founded by great, great, great grandpa that still has money in it today? Like there's, there's ways to actually accomplish both is, you know, helping uh, individuals find their passion, find the things that are so incredibly um, annoying to them that it exists, that they have to do something for it. Like supporting that, it's rare to find something like that. It's rare to say, nope, that's it. I found it. I want to do it. This is where I'm going to put all of my money and all my resources to it. And so, um, and then there's lots of things that go along with it after that. But that's but that's that value that value of community, your value of supporting a community and being important in the central of that, and then using your family's power to convene, is family philanthropy. It sounds so simple. <laughs> it is pretty simple. It, it, the execution is hard. The, it, but uh, but it's also 
Tim, in, in your past and what you're highlighting, which is skipping over a big one, is understanding where it is that you want to do your work is super hard to figure out <sighs> because there's a massive amount of guilt of what you choose not to do. Right? Oh, yeah. you get, We all get hit up. Right. We get asked so, all the time for stuff. Right. So most philanthropy starts for anybody, starts local. Your example for United Way. I, I want my community to thrive. I live here. I work here. My family grows here, grows up here. I go to school here. I want my community to thrive. So uh, there's a ton of philanthropy that just starts local. Start right there. And then the second is like, well, okay, well, then what, what am I interested in? Is it that there's a homeless yes. problem in my community? Is it? Um, and then you start getting it. You start peeling away layers of the onion of saying, well, okay, actually, this is a problem in my community, but it's also a problem in my state. So how do I help? So it grows from that local idea. Yes. But the, a part of that is, though, is like the things I don't, you can't, you can, it's a choice of spreading your philanthropic dollars across many things to do good work. All philanthropy is good. I, I'll say that on record every time. I say it all the time. All philanthropy is good. The, the value of it and growing it is, can have different layers of impact, right? But all philanthropy helps something. Right. And so at the end of the day, when you start going and say, OK, I'm I'm interested in homelessness, but I'm not interested in environmental issues. Fine. Great. That's awesome. Like that you're going to dedicate your resources to something that's uh, like specific as homelessness and you're not going to dedicate is a is a focus issue that or a challenge that um, our families of wealth all have done before. They've created businesses right. by like targeting an idea or a product or a service and then concentrating all of their assets into one thing to then create massive wealth, right? So what if they did that in philanthropy and said, okay, homelessness is my issue. I'm going to solve it. And now I'm going to put all my research. And, and when you start the, where the industry gets a little bit uh, trips over itself is saying, well, environmental issues are, Part of homelessness of course it is yeah of course like there's of course there's connections to it but it's it's don't don't dissipate the the family's interest in concentration because that's where as you said the dreamers really show up because their families are good at that and that and that's what they've that's how they've created their wealth and if they're ready to commit that kind of talent resource expertise to an issue area go so and, and support that as we go forward. If we had so as a, if we stop and talk, do sort of a language check when we talk about philanthropy, or we talk about volunteering, or we talk about charitable giving. Do you decipher any of that? Does that? No, I don't. It's all part I, of it, right? It's all. It's all. So the caveat here is my accounting brain only works in one direction. It only works in a system. <laughs> Right. It only works in the system. So all those things are critical elements within the system of philanthropy. All have different levels of importance, all have different levels of commitment, all are, okay. all are part of it. But in the system, they're all needed. Right. So all of those things, I feel, carry equally as much as I need financial donations, as much as I need volunteer hours, as much as I need a family to convene a donor circle. Right. I, I need all of those things. And I need that family to also speak to a local representative who unlocks dollars, for the, dollars for the community. Right. Like it, it, all of those things are in the system. And 
the 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 worry I have in this is all that seems overwhelming, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, spent, I've spent way too much time in this field, right? To under and been in all these things and been trained at in you know Lilly School at Indiana and trained by my friends at Chip to learn complexity within philanthropy, right? And in many cases, that is an overwhelm function that people just shut it off and say, you know what? I give to my communities, I give to my church, I give to my school. I'm really good at that point. There's an element of that's true. Like we make it more complicated than it needs to be, but it's the it's working with when the families that we work with is trying to get out of the noise of the complexity and just say, go back again, come back to connect to what are your values that you want to see mm-hmm. Im- embedded in your community, embedded in your philanthropy, or where's your passion? So my passion is philanthropy, not a specific Everything. area, just the, just the action of philanthropy. And okay. as you, my friends will, at CHIP will tell you, my real passion is accelerating dollars out the door. I I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. So my whole passion is to accelerate the dollars out the door and not have, there's many vehicles that kind of get in the way of that and structures and all the other things that I'm not a big structure. In our minds, in our, in our brains. And in our brains. Like, yeah, sometimes you just have to do it. Right. And, and sometimes depending on where you are in that direct service or in that, you know, research and innovation, all those have different timelines. So short term, less risk easier to understand longer term research and innovation policy work you're you're putting in mon- money that may not have any benefit in the future you have no idea but it's important to do it now just to see where that goes the risk tolerance of that and the risk tolerance of those dollars is critical well i and remember so- during the and during the covid when you and i were talking you and i yeah. said you said one day i said what are you doing he says i'm trying to accelerate our giving right now particularly to like the food bank or to yep. Where, where there are people, there are real shortages at the moment. We're yep. trying to fill the gap, and yep. we just got to do it. We just got to give the money. Super easy, right? Like people need stuff, right? There, and it wasn't available, and it was too costly, and stores were closed, and all the things, and even like simple things like um, diapers aren't eligible for SNAP benefits, right? So, mm-hmm. when you can make sure that all these food pantries are full of diapers for babies just because getting them and resources were so hard. Like it was a resource constrained moment and time. So those are easy. Like those are easy to give. They're e- they're, you're with reputable partners who've been doing this for a long periods of time. And then who know where their community is, know how to communicate, know how to distribute all those things. They just need resources. That's an easy answer, right? And that's an easy way to engage. And you find your, your favorite charities and you go. What well, I had some friends during COVID that, they had been giving. They were what, what you and I would call a, a high donor. I don't know that they were. They're not family office level or foundation, but they were giving significant money. Yep. But then the charity was the the food pantry in our neighborhood said they lifted the boundaries of uh, zones like around the, the city, so yep. they would just serve anybody that comes in. Yep. So so they went down to volunteer because there was nobody showing up to do the actual stocking, to right. unpackaging the food and to put it together. And they found great joy in and and I think they what what I saw was that these friends got a deeper friendship because they were going down and doing sure. something together that was good. Yep. And I so I was thinking in my mind, well, the act of actually giving of their time. 
and then also giving of of their expertise but then they created a positive energy yep like the enthusiasm around everybody in the charity yep so i love that you're always about the simplicity and giving and i was thinking about one of the families that i really really enjoyed working with a couple of years ago was a mutual friend of ours and the family's older generation who's no longer with us had created a foundation and then the all the children of that of that couple were running the foundation but now the children are in their 70s late mm -hmm. you know 60s and 70s and some maybe yep. in the 80s they only had a couple of the kids their kids involved and so when I sat through the meetings, you know, they were going through this list of how they, and it was kind of this rote thing and there was no energy in the room, but I noticed that the younger members of the family were wanting to participate. Right. And I said, well, maybe, you know, have you ever surveyed the family as to all the charity they're doing now, the giving they're doing outside of this structure? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no. And I'm like, so if you all give to, a private girls school or private boys school or, or you're all the, and the kids are going to these schools. Um, don't you think it'd be a cool thing to sort of get all the family together and figure out how much collectively you're impacting this. Yep. And then I had the simple idea that I said, you know, what if, if you tracked everything you've done since you started the foundation 30, mm -hmm. 40, 50 years ago, no, yep. they could go back and track it to a certain 30 years. Yep. When they shared that in this family meeting we had, the the younger all of the family were taken back by what had they had done in the community. Yeah. yeah. Across the board. And this is a pretty conservative area, but the family had made donations to Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. to trees in the park, to yep. walkways, to the symphony, to uh, medical. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. Nobody yeah. knew about it. Nobody knew about it. That's the, but that's part of the work, right? Is really understanding it's there's that immediate glow you get after you make a gift, right? But it, what's the longer term impact? There was uh, one of the pieces of work I did for a university long, long time ago was um, they had a scholarship program for students. It had been running for mm -hmm. 25 years, mm -hmm. right? 25 year scholarship program, not that's insignificant, impressive, yeah. right? And and the school was talking to the family. And uh, I was working with the fundraiser at the time and I was talking to the family, like the family's not sure they want to continue. Like 25 years is a good run. Like, is this good enough for us? And I said to them, have you ever like had one of the original recipients write to the family as to what it meant to them 25 years later or 20 years later or 15 years later? Uh, and they were like, oh, no. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like it's the understanding the longer term impact of what your dollars are doing presents opportunities to help you in the present, right? It's like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, of the, those kids, you know, 80% of them are thriving. 90% of them are employed, like all the things that, that come along with postgraduate education or post high school graduation, all the things um, they weren't capturing that. And so therefore how it's not always on the donor in that case to understand, like the donor has to ask for that stuff. And sometimes there's a lot of burden on reporting and impact. And we could talk about that too uh, on the nonprofit side and, and to, to measure impact. But those, there are easy low hanging fruit things that I always think are helpful to understand. So understanding how a scholarship recipient from 25 years ago is doing today 
is important to understand if I'm going to continue this program going forward. Those are data points that you can gather along the way that I think are important to understand it and is the responsibility of both parties to make sure that that kind of base level data is being captured. And then for what purpose, right? So the purpose in that case was to, you know, how do I extend the program? Is the purpose is to design a new intervention for a community and understand who it works for and who it doesn't work for. That's really important because maybe you stop, you actually stop doing something because you've learned something or you continue it or you advance it. Like there are small pieces of data to understand what's going on. And it is everybody's responsibility in that time period of your gift whether it's one year, three years, five years, to understand what do you want to accomplish during that period of time. The thing that's important to understand in that is the nonprofit existed before the gift, will exist, uh-huh. at, will most likely exist exactly. after the after gift. The gift. Yep. And so you have to match your timing, right? So if I'm giving a one-year gift, it is unreasonable for me to think, well, what are you going to accomplish 10 years from now if I give you a one-year gift? It's unreasonable, right? right. And, okay. and okay. it's okay. unreasonable for the nonprofit to develop some kind of measure to say, actually, if you give us 10 bucks today, we're going to accomplish this breakthrough technology in 10 years from now. That's not, that's not going to happen. There needs to be better work on aligning goals within the period of your gift. So if you're giving a one-year gift, what can be accomplished in that one year? What can be learned right. in that one year? What is important in that year? What is the executive director saying, hey, you know what? If I had 10 bucks right now, I would do this because it'll tell me all these things. Super important. And and it'll it'll help learn all the other things that are in my organization. Great, awesome gift. Right? Or maybe it's a three-year gift, or maybe it's a five-year gift because you've learned something in the first year and says, yeah, but it's gonna take us three years to get this off the ground. You have to make be ready to make that commitment to say, okay, yep, get it. I need to do it. And that's uh, we can get into this a little bit too. There's a bit of this is the trust-based philanthropy um, in the world right now is how that's being described. And this is kind of what I'm kind of dancing around a little bit, but it, it's that engagement and partnership between the person giving the gift and the, and the person mm-hmm. receiving the gift and, and the ask for help that helps in, in this process of, of really understanding what is the ask for help. If you give to your university a thousand bucks a year there's no, there's, there's no commitment. Right. On that. I, I, it, 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 uh, you're, you're supporting direct services. It's continuing. Great. You know what you're going to accomplish. You work with that food shelter you said in Chicago. I'm quite interested as well. Well, has that volunteerism continued post COVID? Mm-hmm. Probably in, in most cases, yes. In a lot of cases, no, because you get into donor fatigue issues and That's right. know, the economy is different and all the other things that factor into that. But what that, not, that nonprofit still exists today, still has the same issues right. it did. In fact, in some cases, probably more. More, they're so, serving more people, I, right. I, which I'm, it makes no sense to me when we have a top economy. But the exact thing, you're saying the exact same thing that the executive director said, look, I need dollars. Yep. We need, because uh, I said, well, what can we do to help? I mean, we can give you $2,500. Right. Or something like that. Right. Which is a good gift, but, yep. and they love it. They'll tell you that that $2,500 will serve 10,000 meals. I mean, they have a their direct number yep. as to what that's going to impact. However, yep. I said, <clears throat> maybe we should host a party. Just like you said, what if we hosted Indeed. a party? And and I said, why don't we do it during Pride? Why don't we get a gay, the LGBTQ community and our friends, our allies together and raise money 
in honor of pride to you know honor uh, our our community and and it's because it's in the area we live in chicago lakeview it's it's based in lakeview but now it's it's got a bigger name and they're trying to grow it to serve more people but she said that'd be great we've never done that right we've never had that ability and then we had a friend of ours that say okay well we'll match for the month of june of 30 you know they'll do a dollar for dollar match up to a certain dollar amount yep for that 30-day period and say okay what and and we did we raised uh enough money to do a dollar for dollar match. Sure. So we took our gift and we made a much bigger, t- you know, yep. 10 times or 20 right. time impact. Yep. Matchings are effective. Matchings are more effective when you've, like you've, like you said, partnered with the executive director because they know where to go with, they know their donor base yep. and they know their donor base that responds to, to dollar matches. Sometimes it doesn't exist. So if you just created a donor match profile and, and you did some work and he's like, yeah, I think my community is going to work here. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But in a lot of cases, if you ask the executive director of that foundation or the president, whatever they're called, it sits there and says, hey, if we give you a donor match, do you have donors to do this? And at what level? Do you, like, right. is it if I give you $10,000, if I have $20,000 and I'm going to give you $20,000 match, they giving the executive director the ability to say, actually, I'd really like your 10 grand now. And then I just need a 10 grand match times three, because that will help me do X, Y, Z. And and that's what I'm kind of talking yeah. about is in this partnership is really kind of using, you know, talking with the, the people beyond the fundraiser of saying like, how, what is it that's actually really critically important right now? And it's not contribution contributions to a, an endowment. Those things are important and all good. When you're talking about an organization like this, the the organization will know exactly what they need to what they need to be spending money on, and and simply need to ask. Excuse me, excuse me. Yes, you. Thanks so much for listening to the Rainbow Bull. We hope you're enjoying it so far. And if you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, you can find us at www.tvolco.com. And all our social media platforms are listed in the show notes. So is there, and I'm, I'm, I think we have, hopefully we have some of our listeners that are part of the, you know, they're, they're part of charitable organizations, whether they're on the board or volunteering their time, but you you mentioned a really interesting thing and that is this donor fatigue. And I also would say that there's a, sometimes there's a personality conflict and we've had, I've had that multiple times where it causes you to pause and like, you want to say, Oh, I'm not going to give money anymore because I don't like this person or I I don't like what they said to me. But then I have to go, okay, were you involved in it because of this other person? You you didn't even know this other person when you started, but the, but the fatigue and the, and the, and the, you know, those are real things. I mean, the, the charitable group yep. fight, right? I don't know what right. to, so how in do we the, fight that? In the, in the statistics that I share with you, and yes, individual giving is still 64%, but the main highlight, the tagline for this year was that individual giving actually declined 6% this year. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So, so, or in 2022, it's a year delayed because of tax reporting, right? right. So, Okay. 6% it declined from individuals in that year. That's it's an interesting stat to understand what it meant what might be happening or it's an invitation to go see what did happen. 
and and where is the money going and and why didn't it and the other side of it is that the stats they're giving in the philanthropic field so a geeky stat for a moment are all from 990 research so tax form 990 from the irs they're publicly available anybody can view them and it includes like the executive director's salary down to where they spend their money it has an inordinate amount of information involved in that i spend a lot of time in 990s okay so that's part one part two is not that you're a geek not that you're i am i am definitely am but the other part of it is giving usa (laughs) who publishes this data is gets their information from the IRS, from their tax fees. So your tax returns will show you, they will show where that money is is being given. So what's important to know is that this charitable giving is the money that people use to reduce their taxes in their giving. So they got a benefit on their taxes for giving, right? However, you can do a whole bunch of charitable giving without taking a tax deduction. That's called okay. the, and therefore, and that is not captured in any of this. Oh, so if you support mutual aid work and there is some kind of work where you, I help you directly, Tim, I know you, you needed groceries during COVID and I gave you 250 bucks to do groceries. That's never captured in any of this stuff. If you do something mm. through GoFundMe right now, like if you go and support a family on GoFundMe that you don't know, that's not tax deductible to you. It's a gift to the recipient. Right. So all there's a whole bunch another side of philanthropy that's happening and mutual aid work really in a bunch of different ways. But how I was directly exposed to it was through a project called Pandemic of Love and uh, my good friend Shelley Togilski, who created this mutual aid network of support that helped strangers find ways to support immediate needs during COVID, which had over four million connections and 70 million dollars of gifts. So if you start just to take a step back and you look at and at all of these things, the 6% decline in individual giving is an important number. But it's only important if it, in the scope of the entire system that I like and I live in, it's like, well, where else is things, are things happening? Mutual aid work is spurring. GoFundMe work is coming, is, is continues to expand. Direct transfers and, and gifts to individuals expanding. All of that non-taxable, non-tax benefit dollars is part of the system that we don't, there's no mechanism to capture it. So it's important that the $499 billion continues to grow. It's also important to understand there's a whole bunch of stuff happening outside of that, the tax benefited dollars that are that is as important, if not more important, than what's going on in the field. So it's, I always, it, we'll get into this later about structures and that kind of stuff, but it's always the, um, if you don't need the tax benefit and for wealthy families, sometimes they don't is you can do anything in philanthropy. Like there's no restriction on what you can do. Cause it's a gift that's doesn't, it's, just not a gift. Subject, it's not subject to IRS rules because you're not getting tax benefit dollars. So go for it. But there's a balance in there that I think is going to become more important over the next couple of years is the balance between tax benefited dollars and you know, and non-tax benefited dollars and where those go and how people gave and how fundraisers attract that type of stuff. It's different. It's a little bit different, but it's just, and a, it's a long way of me saying the 6% decline in 
Thanksgiving after a bunch of years in COVID and with donor fatigue where it's like mm-hmm. I've run out of resources and I need a break, it doesn't scare me in that way. It's it's not material enough in that way to to say that this is a trend. I, I'm more curious as to where else it's happening. And those those numbers don't reflect this direct giving as we talk. Not all that no, not yeah. all the time. No. So in if we were to kind of look back, what you're saying is First, philanthropy can be very rewarding. Yeah. Personally, and as a group, if your family or friends decide to get together to do something together, it can be very valuable. It it it, it reflects a group value. Yes. And I think of it as this way because we have a lot of friends that are listeners that are part of the LGBTQ community, and they may or may not have connection to their birth family or their blood family, but there are friends that do things together. And I wanted to think about one of the cool charities that people probably don't even think about is the woman that founded Dykes on Bikes, which is my favorite part of the Gay Pride Parade. It's where they ride all the Harleys. And it's just just really, really loud, really, really cool part of the parade, you know, and they just run for them. It was a fundraiser for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It was a fundraiser to help women that were living with breast cancer. Right. to help feed them, to make sure that medical care, it, and it just kept growing. It's just grown and grown and grown. And it's it's got this, I don't know why I was just thinking about it, because I think I was thinking about fun things and how it's really turned into this really cool thing. But I don't even know that people see it and they understand that what was really going on behind it. Sure, yeah. But it, it, a lot of times you don't need to, right? So it, no. it, it, it's what, it's your level of engagement is important, right? So how much do you want to engage in the work? Like, right. and, it, and, and from that is the level of complexity within your giving. So again, simplest, uh, keep going is giving to an endowment at a university. Very simple. Like I know what it is. I know what the university does. I have some connection. Easy. You know, working in uh, breast cancer or that kind of work, super hard, right? Cause mm-hmm. there's a numerous number of things that are going on. There's policy and advocacy work that needs to be done. There's research and innovation on the cancer side, which may or may not have the outcomes that you're hoping for. So it can be super hard. And so families have to decide and individuals have to decide where are they on the spectrum of that level of complexity and what's most comfortable and what's most gratifying and then what's most impactful to them saying, actually giving to my university feels good, but actually, you know, I can, directly help someone survive breast cancer feels amazing. So what is it that we're doing here? And so finding your, your space in that, um, in in that spectrum is really an important element of this. And again, connects back to one, where your values line, where does, you know, what level of communication you want to work with your, with your nonprofit, are you direct services or are you research and innovation or, you're building scale and capacity. <clears throat> Which one of those is is important to you? Yeah. And then finding that space is always and, that's and, the work. And maybe finding. I mean, you don't have to start at that high level. Maybe it's just going like you decide you want to work on homeless youth. Yeah. Uh, so you decide to volunteer a little to find to learn about it, read about it. You start trying to understand it, and then you then you want to move into bigger things because you have the capacity to do more for the charitable charitable organization that you want to support. And but then it, even in that situation, when you start thinking about it, right? So if you take that example or a, a little bit of a, a more straightforward is you take a, a food kitchen of some sort, yeah, right? Okay. So you fund a food kitchen, like you said, you, you know, it mm-hmm. gives them food, but what else is happening in that food kitchen? Right. Right. It's not just serving their meal. 
it's actually a community event of homeless people in that period right. who, who have gathered at a specific time every day who um, eat and in, in the resource, but also have the opportunity for medical, mental health help, um, social services, engagement. Like it's a place of gathering that other things are happening. So if that person starts to thrive or improve, well, what's the what's the attributable fact? Is it the fact that they got a meal? Maybe. Is it the fact that they actually got uh, medication or mental health support while they were sitting there eating? Is it the fact that they were part of a community, not all isolated for that you know hour of time during the day? All those things are so important, and that's what executive directors work on all day. Donors only see pieces of it. Like I'm raising money to. Um to feed to fill the fridge at the so we can feed people but the executive director already knows that that there's a mental health advisor who sits in the room and there's a social services director who has access to rooms or you know especially i live here in colorado when it gets negative 20 degrees like there's you know places to to sleep and 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 not freeze and so how do you connect all those pieces together the donor doesn't necessarily have to understand all of that but it just has to understand that it exists and the, the evidence of work that you do with an executive director or learning how you donate is to is to just sit with the executive director for a half an hour and say, what's going on here beyond just what food is being offered and how is it being cooked and how many volunteers do you have? Like that's then you're going to really feel because you may find in your passion, like I have I'm really supportive in my community of a food shelter or homeless shelter or whatever it is, but I'm actually really passionate about mental health. And by the way, we're putting three mental health people in a service area. How can I go help that? But which, well, you would not know that unless you talk to the the executive director and said, Oh, well, I mean, that's your recommendation. You get to know the charitable organization on a deeper level to say, okay, what's really going on. And I, I love that. I really love that. Yep. So even like a covenant house in New York, right? With so teen homelessness, is that if you don't, if a a, a child, still their child, right? There, if a child uses drugs three times in covenant house, you can't come back, right? Mm-hmm. You're expelled. And and so there are organizations that work with, as a one in New York City called Reciprocity, who works with homeless youth and their covenant houses and others to help understand what's the source of the drug problem so that they don't trip out of the services that covenant house it can provide to them super important yeah. right because because yeah. it, it, timing out of a covenant house eliminates all those other um, resources that are available to you as a homeless youth in new york city and so are there are organizations that actually work directly with the and uh, Reciprocity does mindfulness work and others to understand, kind of get to the root of the drug problem that, again, um, prevents them from realizing full services. Phenomenal organization doing phenomenal work and that that kind of stuff, like all those. You wouldn't know that unless you you know, you started Been time to get to know them. Yeah. So as we wrap this up today, what are the key things that you want people to remember from our from our talk today? I think the first is, and I, we didn't really talk about it, but I, I think it'll capture is don't feel guilty about your giving. Like don't feel guilty that you're mm-hmm. not giving enough. All you're giving is good giving. Just start. Love there. that. Love so that. that. So that's the first thing. Okay. The second is 
what is what is so passionate, so value driven? What is what are you so connected with that you can't stop thinking about it in philanthropy? And by the way, take time to understand what that would be. It doesn't it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come as a moment. I had no idea that I would be in a philanthropic you know, role when I started my career. And so what does that actually look like for you? Do the work for yourself and 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 understand your own value set, which is, has everything to do with where you live, how you spend your money, the families you have, like, what are your values? And, and, and can you articulate those? And then where are those show up in the world of philanthropy? Can you make that connection? Okay. And then, so that would be two. And then three, you know, just get engaged, dream big, like work with the executive directors of these organizations and the staffs of these organizations who have dedicated their lives for very nominal pay in most cases to solving a problem. And you're going to be there for a period of time, critical, super important period of time that then, then you're going to help them launch to the next stage. Right. So realize where you are in the stage, realize what's important to you, whether it's, you know, continuing support, like I said, a direct services or helping them grow or scale, like understand, you know, what's your motive, your personal motivation in your giving and then stop and then find the organizations that match that um, and match that risk tolerance and then extend your risk tolerance. So a failed gift, what's a failed gift? Right. There isn't who a failed gift. There is, there's, who, there's a, like, who cares? It's just that it just didn't, but it, it's important to the organization that they've learned something from your gift. They learned something for that. They learn not to do something is as important as learning what to do, right? So extend your resources, financial and non-financial convening in other ways to make sure that the organization has the ability to learn something during your, your partnership with them that allows them to expand, expand their services improve what they're doing, um, deepen their impact or, or, or realize their full potential. I just never realized you were so smart. (laughs) I'm teasing you. I I love hanging out with you. Always. It's always, it's so wonderful to have you take a very complex subject and drill it down so we can understand. I just, you are gifted in that. You were also gracious in giving us some books and reference points. Do you want to mention those at all quickly? Sure. So there's two, one of the things about this is always learning. There's always an element of learning. So one of the things is from accounting to philanthropy, there were two really important organizations. So Lilly School and um, the Center for High Impact Philanthropy were critical in their trainings to help me get to this point. So there is always basis of learning that were important to me. But for to learn along the way is a guide called the five stages of nonprofit organizations by Judith Sharkin Simon. Uh So it's a workbook. It's been around since 2001. It is the best philanthropic due diligence guide I've ever used. And it helps you understand the stage of that organization. Are they an early stage organization or a late stage organization? And, and it connects to the thing, the, in essence, the four elements that we talked about, which was direct service, scale, research and innovation or policy and advocacy. It helps you try to understand if does this organization fit where I'm trying to fund. So that my favorite book, I give it to every staff I've ever worked who's ever worked with me. And then for just general learning in philanthropy, giving done right by Phil Buchanan is is a critical book for our field. Helping how to offer, give and receive help by Edgar 
Shine is a really important book to remember that we've all asked for help at some point in our lives. <laughs> Even the most wealthy of us or the most powerful have asked for help in the in the in times of need. So it's just reminding you that help is actually how can I help is a really important question. Um, the Family Philanthropy Navigator by a group of authors and a good friend Etienne Eichenberger is a guide again for family philanthropy to design family specific missions and and work that way okay. and then my favorite my favorite in this book is a gentleman by the name of Jed Emerson who's done a lot of impact investing and values and he's wrote a book called the purpose of capital which is free about how what is the purpose of you know having capital why why it's not to accumulate it's to improve the world and Jed <laughs> writes a great book on on what that actually means to him and um, one of my favorites that I reference a lot I love that. Rob, how do you like to think about where this fits within the five capitals? It's in all of them. That's right. It, it, it's, a, it's a five capital project, right? So um, in the same way that financial capital props up the family values and families work, the financial capital helps understand the social, intellectual, human capital of the organization, the political or, of the organizations you're supporting. So it is, it is actually five capital work. The other side of it is this is for families of wealth specifically. It enhances the capital work you do internally because it's, right. the, out, it's the outward facing of your internal values, which I think what, is so what you're gonna have, I think it is too. What you're going to do. How are you going to make the world a better place? Right. So if you do all these value workshops and that, you know, that you do and understand your own values and purposes and passions and all that other stuff is all internal to your family. Philanthropy is the external action of that work. And I think that kind of connects everything in the five capitals and it connects everything to the work that we do is that, and that's what makes it sticky. That's what makes it long-term. That doesn't make it just a nice gift here that we've given here, but it's actually part of a family system rather than just a kind of a one-off event to save some tax dollars, which doesn't really matter. And in, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about how we measure this, how we make sure, is there a way to make sure this is working and how we can measure it. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode, but I really want to thank you for your time today. You've done a remarkable job of, of helping us see a little bit in the work in the window that you are looking out right now. So I really, really appreciate that. And, and if people wanted to reach out to you, how do they reach you, Rob? Um, they can reach my email address is R E K at arlington.com and then my phone number is 203-554-9077 happy to talk about this anytime patrice and we will have those resources in the show notes correct yes yep. all right so all those resources will be in the show notes listeners uh and tim how can people reach you well i'm happy to be of resource to anybody at tim.volk at tvolko.com and of course, you could reach me at 312-636-5855, call or text. And uh, I really appreciate everybody listening. And if you like the podcast, like it and share it with others. We want to have more people listening all the time. And if you follow it, you will know when part two of this discussion is ready for you, especially for you. As Tim said, though, share it with others as well. Follow. Part two is coming up. And thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvolco.com 
or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.